Can I have the, the words up? Can we do that? Sorry. Well, well, he's faffing about. Hello. Um, here's an interesting story. Last November, the one that's just gone, a couple of weeks ago, was five years since I went to Ogmore Vale. Does that make you feel old? Makes me feel old as well, and depressed. Um, I've been really moved preparing this sermon this week, so I might be suicidal later. I hope not. Now, I didn't realize there'd be so many children in the room. So, children, I'm going to talk in a way that I hope you can follow. And I want you to become Christians tonight, if you're not already. Okay? You understand? Now, Henry, is the words up here? No. It's coming. But I'll say something else. On the way here, I had unheard audio footage of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, because someone handed them to me. And he said something interesting. I'll tell you what he said. He said, don't make notes when I preach. He said, you can make them when I lecture, but don't make them when I preach. Because when I preach, it's the whole picture that has a power. And it's made up of little parts, and you're busy scribbling out the little parts, and you miss the big part. That's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, I'm not Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I don't particularly care if you make notes. Um, I'm just wasting time for Henry. Oh, there we are. So please do make notes if you want, but don't get bogged down. Now, I am here to preach the gospel. Can you hear me? Yes. I, <laughs> I'm, here to I'm here to preach the gospel. And I do have little parts along the way as we form that picture. So now here comes the first part of the sermon. And I'm going to set out a little case, like a lawyer, but not a very good one. And my case hinges on three little words, which Henry messed up when he read them in the reading, because he missed the middle one. And my three little words are, for, to, me. It should be there. Not for me, Henry. Now here's my case. My case is to argue that people make two huge mistakes with those three words. The first mistake is this, to skip over them really quickly, for to me. The second verse, the second problem naturally follows, therefore, because you've skipped over them, you think he's preaching doctrine here as fact for every Christian. And my case is, if you think that's what's happening here, you're wrong. Most commentators and preachers and Christians say that this is an automatic process for everyone to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is not what is happening here. Now, of course, when you die, even if you're a shoddy, useless believer, there will be some gain in death, but that's not what Paul is on about here. Okay? So what is he talking about, Owen, as you make your case? He is talking about his personal experience of God. And here's the evidence of my case. It's in verse 20, which is up there as well, where he's talking about 
everything that's gone on in his life leading up to verse 21 where he says, for to me. Now in Philippians, the following things had happened for Paul. There's a battle raging in his life. He's been in prison. People don't like him. Other people do like him. Other people are preaching out of love. Other people are preaching out of envy. And so he says, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to um, glorify Christ in my body or magnify him, whatever that version says behind me. And in all in the light that's gone on before, he says, for to me to live is Christ. Now, all of you are alive. Good. It's glad to see that some of you are. I didn't think some of you would be five years on, but you still are. And today, tonight, and tomorrow, you're going to have to make lots of decisions with your work and your family and general things in life. But you will not, unless you change tonight, do what Paul is saying here, which is do it all for Christ. Now, I'm going to have a drink because my mouth is very dry because I get particularly nervous when I come here because I love you. <clears throat> In Paul's life, children, he loved Jesus so much that in every decision he made, he did it for Jesus. And Jesus was so special to him that he would say, he is my life. And that's not the automatic process of everyone in this church now, is it? And that's my case. And that's why Paul can really say, to die is gain. Because I get more of the life of Christ when I die. Some of you children, you don't love Jesus like that. Some of us adults don't either. But here he is telling you and telling me that this is the very best life to have. The very best. Better than a PlayStation if you're getting one for Christmas. Better than an Xbox. Better than a dinosaur if you still like dinosaurs at the back. Living for Christ. Now, I have a new practice. And when, when my birthday comes along or when Christmas comes along, someone asks me, what do you want for Christmas, Owen? And I say, give me your best book. And invariably, I'm never disappointed. Apart from with Phil Parsons, who's lent me a book about walking around Yorkshire. And it might be the worst book I've ever read. But usually, they give you good books. I've got another practice. When I go to a restaurant now, I say to the waiter or waitress, give me your favorite off the menu. And I'm not usually disappointed. And I'll tell you why. Because they know their product and their reputation is on the line. And they pick the best choice from their knowledge and from their experience. And if we said to the Apostle Paul, what is the best life that I could possibly live? He would say, for to me, to live is Christ. And you might think tonight, I'm so full of sin, Paul. What's the best life I can have? I'm so tired. I'm so worried about a situation in my life or somebody in my life. And the word still comes, for to me, to live is Christ. I know a lady. Her name is Kate Batstone. She's my mother. And if you asked her, mother or Kate, what's the best period of your life in modern times? She will look you in the eyes and she will say this, 
when I had leukemia. And I say, why, mother? Or my, why, Kate? And she says, because he was near. For to me to live is Christ. And I'll say, what, mother? Aren't I the best thing in the world? And she'll say, no. And I'll say, what, is Keith the best thing in the world? And she'll go, no. What about baby Jensen and Levi, who you love very much? And she'll say, no. The one who loves me more than you do, Owen, I love him. The one who visited me in Heath Hospital outside of visiting hours, he came very close to me. I love him. For to me, Owen, to live is Christ. That is what I'm made for. Well, that's part one done, children. Are you following my case? So that's not the case for every Christian to say that. Good. Here comes the next part of the case. Now we understand my case. We should see, if you've been thinking and listening, that we have a problem. And here's the problem. And I've already said it. Very few Christians can say this about Jesus, their Lord. Very few Christians in this room can say, for to me to live is Christ. Very few people. Now I'm going to tell you about a rot that's setting in the church in Wales. Came in about 150 years ago. And it's like Christians are being lowered down a mine. And their vision of Jesus is getting darker and darker as they go down. Now some people here have not experienced Jesus in power for many, many years. That's a sin. It's called the rot. And some of you have been down this mine of not experiencing Jesus for so long, it's pitch black. And all this is, is a textbook to you. And he's not special. That's a rot. And that's the problem with my case. And that's why so many people skip over the words, for to me, because they don't have a clue what he's talking about. And so I say to you, young and old, come out of a system of be good behavior and being churchy. Come into life. Now some of you are thinking, I don't feel like coming into life. That's why you've got to come into life. So in your seats, you little ones and you older ones, you tell Jesus now, I don't feel like coming. Please help me come to spiritual life. Because there'll never be a day where you feel like coming because you're a sinner. You come tonight. Now I have two sons, Jensen and Levi. Something worries me about them. And it's this, I see it all the time. Churchy parents give birth to churchy children and none of them really ever know Jesus. That's a worry for me. Let me tell you, I'm a chaplain on boys' camp. Excuse me while I have another drink. I'm a chaplain again on boys' camp this year, Heath Evangelical Church. It's in a field. And Rita tells me off for something I do every year. Do you know what I do every year? I get my wet clothes, and I put them in the same bag as the dry clothes. And guess what happens to everything in the bag? Everything becomes damp. Now, some people think you can become a Christian like that. You go on camp. Or you join a church. Or you are given a job to do in church. And little by little, bits of behavior in your life tweak a little bit, and you become what's known as churchy. That's a danger. That 
never leads to anyone saying, and older people in the room, I hope you're listening to this because I keep meeting older people who fall into this category, that never leads to someone saying, for to me, to live is Christ. And I want my sons to say that because when we say that, that's better than living a life of sin, which is very attractive and very powerful and churchiness can't rival it. That's what I want for my boys and for you. So that's the case. That's the problem. And now we come to maybe the most important part of tonight's sermon. And it's a question. Ready? If we can't say we're living for Christ or for me to live is Christ, how do you get to the place where we can say it? Now, the good news is Paul answers it, and he answers it three chapters later. But because we're using a screen, it's not up there. So I'm going to read you some verses. Now, Paul takes us to a place where he came out of the coal mine, and he became dead to himself, and he began to say, I am alive to God. He takes us to a place where his good behavior and churchiness died, and he got something better in return. He takes us to a place where Christ is, now this is a big word, children, pertinent, powerful, and beautiful. And he warms Paul's heart. Have you had your heart warmed by Paul? I'm now going to read Philippians 3, verse 8 to 11. If you don't understand it, I'm going to explain it after. This is Paul where he came alive. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Ready? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Let me just sum up what he just said, children. It's actually remarkably simple. This is where Paul came alive to God, when he realized that Christ died on a cross for his sins. And he got given the righteousness of God and was welcomed into the family of God. I'll just read one or two other verses just to hammer this home. Paul says this, May I never boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ, for whom the world has been crucified to me, and I've been crucified to the world. Here's one last verse. It's in Romans 5. That was Galatians 6, by the way. Here's Romans 5. Now, if we died with Christ, we also live with Christ. That's the case. That's the problem. That's the answer. And now we're at the fourth and final part of my sermon. And I want us to look at the events of the cross. Now, as we look, children and oldies and everybody in the middle, I want you to ask yourself, is there any area of my life which I love myself 
more than I love Jesus Christ? Is there any area in how I behave in school or back home or in church or with my friends which I am not obeying and that I can't say for me to live is Christ? And as you look, I want you, as we look at the cross, to put it on the one who is on the cross. And we come to the most profound verse ever written. It's in Mark 15, 34. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you see this, you'll come alive to Jesus Christ. Now, let me get very personal with some questions. You may never have been asked this one before. Here's the first one. How serious is sin in your opinion? How serious is sin in your opinion? Here's the next question. If I say I'm in the doghouse with Rita, my wife, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm in trouble? Does it mean I'm in trouble? You children at the back, have you ever been in the doghouse with mum? You heard that term before? Here's another question. Does your sin result in you being in the doghouse with God? The answer is no. Now, we have a doghouse in our garden. It doubles up as a Wendy house for Jensen, or whatever the boy version is of a Wendy house. I'm not sure what that is. Now, 300 meters further down from our house is another building. It's not a doghouse. It's a morgue. And Owen Sendel, the undertaker, works at that morgue. Now, people in the morgue are in a lot worse state than people in the doghouse. Do you understand the difference at the back? In Ogmore Vale, lots of people know they're in the doghouse with God. But that's not enough. Because they don't say, for to me to live is Christ. Why? because they don't see how serious their sin is. Now, in the doghouse, when you're in trouble with someone, you might whimper and you might feel sad about yourself. And this new year, you might even make some resolutions. But to say to be alive to Christ, you need to admit this. Are you ready? You need to admit that you're dead to God. Some of you are dead to God tonight in your seat. You need someone to enter the morgue to get you out of the morgue. And by the way, people have to die to join you in the morgue to get you out. Now, I'm going to quote a man called R.C. Sproul, Jr. He said this, Why do bad things happen to good people? That's only ever happened once, and he volunteered. Do you understand what that means? Why do bad things happen to good people? That's only ever happened once, and he volunteered. Now we look at Mark 15. Up until this point, there's been a lot of mention of the physical sufferings of Jesus. He's been flogged. I think that means he's been beaten up. They've stuck a crown of thorns on his head, children. He's been humiliated in front of his friends and his family. Now, six hours have passed, when we get to this part, where they've driven long nails through his hands and through his wrists. I won't argue which one. The other day, Rita 
caught her thumb on a nail and she was in agony. This has been happening for six hours and there are crowds spitting at him and jeering him. Did you watch the Eurovision football competition that's just gone and all the crowds who were jeering? It's a horrible and frightening event when crowds want someone dead. And darkness has come over the land and now suddenly, after a long silence, comes an anguished cry, not from physical pain, but from the depths of the Lord Jesus's soul. And it's an Aramaic version of Psalm 22. And I only mention that because if you're a Christian, you can see how far backwards you've been loved tonight. And here's verse 34. And he cries it out from the bottom of my heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll pause. Isn't it true that the scars of inner pain we carry with us much longer than the scars of physical pain? No beat down can bring a pain like this in a loss. Somebody's son is being murdered on a cross. Now pause that narrative. I've got to tell you another story. The worst bit of news for me in the year 2016 was this. When I turned to my BBC app and I saw that a crocodile had stolen a two-year-old son from his father. Did you read that story? The little boy died. Turns out the father was being neglectful at the time. That's a different story. Anyway, since having children, stories like that make me want to cry much more than before I had children. And I lay awake for uh, about three days, sad to the bottom of my heart. Here's a question. Why do I feel so strong about that story? Here's the answer. Because, and lots of you know this, a fatherly or paternal bond is one of the most powerful bonds in the universe. How many times have we heard Henri scream when she thinks one of her children or grandchildren are in danger? Now, if I got my mobile phone out, you would see lots and lots of photos of my children. I love them. And some of my fish, but my children. And when I see my sons happy and content, I am happy and content. We have a lady in Ogmore Vale whose daughter was murdered, and she'll never, ever be the same again. Do you know why that bond is so powerful? Because God invented it and he gifted you that bond to teach you a lesson and that lesson is he is a father who has a son who he loves and he loves him in the spirit except his love for his son is nothing compared to what I feel for my son and I feel the world for them because he has no sin in his love for his children sometimes I want to throttle my children and they want to throttle me. But in Matthew 3, the father spoke with a very loud voice about baby Jesus as he grew up a bit. You know what the father said? This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
And then you get Jesus in John 17 saying this back. Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. And throughout the whole Bible, if you read it, if you don't read it, children, you need to start reading this, you'll see God's fatherly instincts all over Scripture. Now I'm going to fl fling out some examples. In Exodus 4, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Thank you, Anne. In Deuteronomy 1, it says, God carries his people as a father carries his son. Thank you. Deuteronomy 8, he says he disciplines as a father disciplines a son. If you had a son in the Old Testament, do you know what you would probably call him? You wouldn't call him Jensen. You wouldn't, or you might call him Levi. But there was a popular name in the Old Testament. It was this, for a boy, Abijah, which means... The Lord is my father. And baby Jesus grew up, and John 3 says the father placed everything in his hands. Everything. And then John 5 says the father shows this son everything that he does. If the father was at your meal table today, he'd be talking about his son. And if the son was at your dinner table today, he'd be talking about his father. Because in John 14, he says, The world must know that I love my Father. And John 4 says that he loves the Father so much to do his will is like eating food for him. And so we come back to the tragic story which broke my heart about that crocodile. So if something of that bond is in us, how do you think I felt when I read that a crocodile had snatched a son away from his father? The answer is, I felt sick. How would you feel if a thief in Ogmore Vale or a kidnapper broke into my house tonight and stole my sons from me? How would you feel about that man or woman? Now here's the big question. And I know what Paul's answer would be. What would you think of an enemy that caused this son to say to his father, My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're not honest with this answer, you'll never get to where Paul is when Paul says, For to me to live is Christ. We come back to one of my other questions. How serious is sin in your opinion? That vicious enemy, ladies and gentlemen, that causes this rupture in the Trinity from son to father is your sin. Let's go a bit further, actually, at the risk of offensing, uh, offending everyone in the room. That enemy which is causing this to happen is you. And it's me. You little ones, it's you. You oldies, it's you and it's me. And life in Christ starts tonight with you getting it. Life in Christ starts here with the fear of God, being afraid of him and his law. And it presses in on you with such a power as you realize all the wrong is with you 
and all the right is with the Father, who I don't know. It starts with despair. I'm living in his world as a rebel. I am by nature a child of wrath, born with a rebellious heart against this father. Now if you turn the news on, you'll see this. Rebels at work. Rebels against each other. Rebels against the father who wants everyone to love him as much as we love ourselves. So this is what your son does to the father. And to, this is what your sin does to the relationship the father has with the son. I'm going to quote a man better than me to sum up verse 34. He paraphrases it. It's the Reverend Donald MacLeod. He says, this is what's happening in verse 34. And he, and he quotes Jesus, paraphrases him. Father, I'm crying out, but my father has closed his ears to me. And I think of baby Jensen as someone snatches him away from me. And he cries out in his hour of need. Dad, an intruder is here. And I turn my back and I close my ears. Why does he say why? Why have you forsaken me? Someone said this. When Mary held baby Jesus in her arms, she had no idea as she held his little hands and feet that one day six-inch nails would be driven through them. But the father knew, and Jesus knew, so why does he say why? His whole life he knew why. He says this, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away from you. And he was talking about himself. He says this, unless a grain of wheat falls to the floor and dies, it can't bear fruit. He will be the sin bearer. Did it slip his mind? Why does he say why? Well, I'll answer this one. It's because of this. For the first time in eternal history, something has come between the Son and the Father. And listen to this, even for the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of the power of that enemy is almost too much to bear. It's your sin. That's how serious your sin is. You know that sin in your heart tonight, which keeps you from saying, for to me to live is Christ, your little sin. Here it is unveiled. It almost shatters the very fabric of the relationship of this beautiful son with his heavenly father. A mighty foe has done this. The son is forsaken. I remember when Rita gave birth. It was the most miserable, miserable night of my life, let alone hers. Well, actually, it was three nights for the first one. We had read magazines about how bad it would be, and she watched that horrific program, One Born Every Minute, and we thought we were prepared, but the reality was worse. And even for Jesus, the reality was worse than the prospect of your sin. Every sin stopping you tonight saying, for me to live 
is Christ, leads here. It's the place of the skull. It's where baby Jesus, we're thinking about him this December, aren't we? Grew up. And he had a bad time there. And he was nailed to planks of wood, children. And there were crowds there. And they were spitting at him with hatred. This is the beloved son. And demons are there. And they're dancing. And there's no alleviation. There's no rescue angel coming down to help. The dove of comfort is locked in a cage. Donald MacLeod says this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was in anguish, he used the word, Papa, Abba. But on the cross, he doesn't use that word, because Papa isn't there. Abba isn't there. I'll tell you who's there. El, Eloi, God. El Shaddai, the holy God. And he's angry. He's angry because his beloved son is sin, is rebellion, is chaos, is that sin in your heart which you won't come to him with tonight. Isaiah says Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. 2 Corinthians says this, and you know it because you've learned it, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And Paul says... I boast in this event. I die there with him. My sin is nailed there with him. Now I've been talking too long. It says quarter past seven. That's wrong. It says ten to seven over there. I don't know what time it is, but I know I've been talking so too long. So I'm going to draw all this together. With Paul in mind, I ask my final question. What does that why mean there for you? You know why Jesus said it. But what does it mean for you as we wrap all this up? Why have you forsaken me? Here's the answer. I hope it bowls you over. Because the Father wanted to destroy the enemy that keeps you from being his sons and daughters. The Father wanted destroy, to destroy anything stopping you saying, For to me. To live is Christ. And you can put it on the God Son now. He sent his beautiful Son to be cursed. So cursed people can be called beautiful, special, loved. 1 Peter 2. You, Christians in Townhill Baptist Church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession I'll tell you something interesting well I think it is you might not but in Luke 23 when it talks about this event Jesus cries out this father into your hands I commend my spirit and then he dies now, here's the interesting thing he's quoting from Psalm 31 verse 5 which says this into your hand I commend my spirit but guess what Jesus at the cross dismantles that psalm because in that psalm, the word Father isn't there. When he dies on the cross, he adds the word Father. Order, peace, restoration. We're back. I've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil and the sins of your people in Townhill Church, and I smashed him. 
And now I'm coming back and I'm taking sinners with me to your presence. We'll call them a holy generation. We'll call them a royal priesthood. And they're going to live for us. And tomorrow when they wake up, they're going to confess their sins and put right anything that you want them to, Father. Do you struggle to tithe? Why? God gave much more than 10% of himself for you. Think about that tomorrow. It's a little twee, but I'll close with this. I'm going to say it anyway. The highlight of my life, and I'm sorry, Rita. No, actually, the second highlight of my life to becoming a Christian, and I'm sorry, Rita, but she's third. The highlight of my life is picking up Jensen from the nursery. And when I'm driving there, I know what's going to happen. He, when I open the nursery door, is going to turn. And he's going to drop whatever he's doing. And he's going to smile. And then what he's going to do is run to his father. And then he's going to give him a big hug. And dad loves it. Now, if you hand your most ugly sin of apathy onto the God-man tonight, do you think it will be the highlight of his Father's Day? I do. Does the story in the Bible teach us about a prodigal son who has a father who runs to sinners? Yes, it does. Okay. Well, remember as I go... People make a mistake. They think serial killers are in hell. But it's those who hit the pause button on these types of sermons one too many times instead of actively choosing Jesus tonight. It's not enough to just believe this. You need to get near to him in your seats tonight. You know there's things in your life stopping you from having life in Christ, and now you know what to do with them. What does Jesus want for Christmas? He wants your sin and he wants your shame for his name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Alan.